0: Tonight on the readout, we are obligated to seek answers directly from the man who set this all in motion. So this afternoon, I am offering this resolution that the committee direct the chairman to issue a subpoena for relevant documents and testimony under oath from Donald John Trump.
1: If Trump lost, he would declare victory anyway and do literally anything to stay in power. While Trump ultimately failed, the threat is ongoing. Republicans who stoked the insurrection are running for re-election, while the new crop of far-right candidates will gladly overturn the next one if they don't like the results. And we begin tonight with the House January 6th committee closing out what's likely to be its final investigative hearing, public hearing at least, with a remarkable step. One of three major developments as it seeks to wrap up its work. The first voting unanimously to subpoena the former president and making it very clear why.
2: He's required to answer to those police officers who put their lives and bodies on the line to defend our democracy. He's required to answer to those millions of Americans who votes he wanted to throw out as part of his scheme to remain in power. This committee will demand a full accounting to every American person of the event of January 6th. So it is our obligation to seek Donald Trump's testimony.
1: Chairman Benny Thompson made clear that Trump was the central player in not just the January 6th attack on the Capitol, but also the extensive plot to overturn the results of a free and fair election. The committee spelled out in new details its second point, that Trump's intention to steal the election was completely premeditated citing testimony from former Trump campaign manager Brad Parscale that he understood from as early as July of 2020 that Trump planned to declare victory even if he lost. And a draft statement prepared for Trump to read on election night written by Tom Fitton of the right wing group Judicial Watch dated October 31st declared, quote, we had an election today and I won again. No election had happened yet. The committee also referenced comments from two of Trump's loyal henchmen, former advisors Roger Stone and former chief strategist Steve Bannon.
3: And what Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory. But that doesn't mean he's the winner. He's just going to say he's the winner. I suspect it'll be, I really do suspect it will still be up in the air. When that happens, the key thing to do is to claim victory. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. No, we won. F*** you. Sorry, over. We won. You're wrong. you.
1: New evidence also showed Trump's state of mind surrounding his failed attempt to overthrow the election through meritless legal challenges, including counting on his stolen Supreme Court to be his Trump card, only to have his challenge to the results in battleground states rejected.
4: The president just raging about the decision and how it's wrong and why didn't we make more calls? And
5: so he had said something to the effect of, I don't want people to know we lost Mark. This is
0: embarrassing. Figure it out. We need to figure it out. I don't want people to know that we lost.
1: Today, even as the committee hearing was underway, the Supreme Court shut him down again, rejecting his request to intervene in the court fight over classified documents seized from his Mar-a-Lago compound. But some of the most damning new information in today's hearing came from evidence about what federal law enforcement and the Secret Service knew about the threat of violence prior to the final step of the former president's scheme, the insurrection on January 6th itself. Including a summary from advisors at the Department of Justice and FBI about communication saying things like invade the Capitol building and engage in political violence. Testimony from Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley showed that other agencies were also aware of the threat of violence, including a warning from a deputy defense secretary, on a national security call.
5: During these calls, I, I only remember it in hindsight because he was almost like clairvoyant. Um, Norquist says during one of these calls, the greatest threat is a direct assault on the Capitol. On there he
1: And we got a fresh look at what happened when that concern came to fruition. As the inflamed mob laid siege to the Capitol on the 6th, in chilling new video showing the chaos that unfolded inside as congressional leaders, led by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, did what Trump wouldn't do, secure the seat of our democracy, the United States Capitol.
3: We have some senators who are still in their hideaways. They need massive personnel now. Can you get the Maryland National Guard to come too? Just pretend for
0: a moment it was the window or the White House or some other entity that was under siege. And let me say, you can logistically get people there as you make the
4: plan. Why don't you get
5: the president to tell them to leave the Capitol, Mr. Attorney General, in your law enforcement responsibility? A public statement they should all leave.
0: We're trying to figure out how we can get this job done today. We talked to Mitch about it earlier. They believe that uh, the House and the Senate
5: will be able uh, to read the in roughly an hour. Good news.
1: Joining me now is Clint Watts, MSNBC National Security Analyst, Distinguished Research Fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute and former consultant with the FBI Counterterrorism Division. And with me in the studio, Nick Ackerman, former assistant special Watergate prosecutor and a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and Charles Coleman, civil rights attorney, former prosecutor and MSNBC legal analyst. I feel incredibly undereducated in this group. Everyone here has many, many, many degrees. But Clint, you are at a disadvantage. You're not here with us at the table. I do want to start with you. That video was about a five Five-minute clip. It was really dramatic, and it showed Speaker Pelosi, it showed um, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and others, sort of doing the president's job that day. In a normal situation, you'd think if you know history looked back on a siege of the Capitol, it would be the president making those calls. Just as, as a national security analyst and somebody who advised the FBI and worked in counterterrorism, what did you make of just that?
5: Yeah, it's just bizarre that it's the president of the, of the United States that's the impetus for the attack and also unresponsive in dealing with it. It's the reverse of what you would think. Yep, it, it is one of the strangest things I'm I'm certain in American history, and I think this always goes back to over the last year when we've had hearings. Uh, it always is why did it take so long or where was the confusion? Well, the president of the United States is in charge of the armed forces. There was not uh, a lot of certainty in terms of who who was in charge or. Who could get troops mobilized? At the same point, you saw, I I think uh, Speaker Pelosi, you you know, did an amazing job. You see her basically organizing around. And uh, honestly, when I look back at General Milley, Secretary McCarthy, a lot of the people in the Department of Defense, it's a miracle they got troops there as quickly as they did, because there just was no chain of command really acting in any sizable way. You heard nothing out of the White House trying to get those people to move back from the Capitol. Uh, I, I think even now, when I watch it, the, the idea that not only did they assault the Capitol but they stayed and lingered uh, for all that time. It's just a travesty for the country. It speaks more broadly to what is leadership if you're the President of the United States, and what if something else had happened? We saw a lot of chaotic uncertainty throughout the Trump administration. this being uh, you know the pinnacle of it, but at many other times, uh, can you just imagine a decision making process more chaotic? how insane it was at the White House and just how lucky we were that we didn't have a massive national security issue that really required a, someone with temperament, someone with poise, and someone who could make a decision in a in a way that would get all of the wheels in motion. And so that clip, I think what it really shows is just how lucky we were to get through January 6th uh, with uh, even as terrible as it was that it wasn't much worse on that day.
1: Indeed. And, and you know, to the gentleman at the table, I mean, uh, Nick and Charles, the thing that is the most dramatic and sort of ins- insane about it is that it was the president of the United States who was directing that attack upon his own capital and it- upon his own vice president. So this wasn't the president failing to do his duty right. because the attack <clears throat> happened. And he didn't know what to do. So Nancy Pelosi had to do it. This was the president actually led the attack. That was the plan. That was the plan. He actually planned the attack. And so it was the rest of government attempting to organize a response to the president's attack on the Capitol.
3: Yeah. And it also looks like the president also ignored the intelligence that came in. He purposely had to have ignored it 10 days before this attack. The Secret Service had lots of information that there was going to be violence that day at the Capitol, yet nobody did anything, which leads you to believe that somebody inside the government was putting their thumb on the scale and not permitting that information to go to the proper people. So that protection could be put in place. I mean, that really deserves a very thorough investigation as to the people that received that intelligence, where it went and why nobody did
1: anything. I mean, and the reality is, Charles, I mean, you have Donald Trump attempting to manipulate the Department of Justice to... Aid in this attack, Um, he has his own people input at the Department of Defense to make this attack possible by making the National Guard unavailable and and other things. But you also have him doing that, knowing he lost the election. That was the other thing I think that was established that was really important. Let me play very quickly. This is Donald Trump's people that worked for him in the White House talking about the fact that he knew with all this that he did that he lost. Here it is.
2: This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country.
3: We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win
1: this election. We want all voting to stop. So he's calling for the voting to stop, but this is what his actual White House team was saying. This is cut one for uh, my uh, director.
5: We're in the Oval and there's a discussion going on. And the president says, I think it's, it could have been Pompeo, but he says words to the effect of, yeah, we lost. We need, to, we need to let that issue go to the next guy, meaning President Biden.
1: I remember maybe a week after the election was called, I popped into the Oval just to like give the president the headlines and see how he was doing. And he was looking at the TV and he said, can you believe I lost to this effing guy?
0: Mark raised it with me on the 18th. And so following that conversation where the motorcade ride, driving back to the White House, and I said, like, does the president really think that he lost? And he said, you know, a lot of times he'll tell me that he lost, but he wants to keep fighting it. And he thinks that there might be enough to overturn the election, but, you know, he, he pretty much has acknowledged that, he, that he's lost.
1: Charles, there are people on trial right now for seditious conspiracy who are acting on his behalf. He knew he lost. Right. Is he, in your view... seditious conspiracy, a thing he might have to deal with soon.
2: I think the question becomes an attempt. When you look at what the January 6th committee has done and what the responsibility of a prosecutor is to do, you are supposed to take away questions that the jury may have. Reasonable doubt is rooted in questions. If you think about what we know now that we did not know from the start of January 6th in terms of the committee and their work, when these hearings began, to everything that we know now— there are so many questions that have already been answered, whereas if Donald Trump never shows up and we don't hear a word from him, if he does not comply with the subpoena, we still know that it is very clear that Donald Trump knew this was going to happen, that Donald Trump wanted this to happen, and, Donald, and that Donald Trump used his power and authority to allow it to happen. Those are the central questions that you're talking about when you're talking about sedition. The connections, those things, those have been established those links have been made, his intent, that has been clarified. So the only thing that is left right now is to see what Merrick Garland and the DOJ decide to do with the information that has come out from so many different witnesses and all pointed to the exact same place. Yeah.
1: I mean, and Clint, this, it was Donald Trump who was in control of all of these executive branches of government, meaning he can, the, the, the DOJ, the FBI, all of these are in the purview of the executive branch. And so he, in theory, had the tools to either stop an attack on the Capitol or theoretically to wage an attack on the Capitol, the Secret Service, all of that. They all work for him. I this is I mean, I think people maybe are having a hard time getting their arms around it. How frightening that is in American history to have a United States president try to use and manipulate all the powers of government in order to stay in power.
5: Yeah, the travesty is he put people that support him uh, against people that worked for him. Uh, that's the the strangest part of this, is he actually incited uh, people to go to the Capitol and attack people that worked in the executive branch. Uh, and the other wrinkle of this all that has been so strange is being allegedly pro-law enforcement and then putting people onto law enforcement. It's always made no sense. I think that just really speaks to why you see, just think of it from the foreign perspective. If you're a foreign country, Vladimir Putin uh, Xi Jinping in China or any leader around the world. And you watch the leader of the United States stick his own people in a violent attack against his own institutions. Remarkable uh, to think about and to think of the opportunities that you see as a foreign. Go to the domestic situation today and how this is really playing out. That election conspiracy, that, that lie is powering candidates to assume offices to undermine the ability to conduct democracy. The, These are people running for positions like Secretary of State, trying to do intimidation of poll workers. Uh, Poll workers are either paid very little or do it voluntarily in many ways. And think about what they're facing in the midterms coming up, still based on the same lie that brought about January 6th. What will happen in this country as it unfolds, if every election is, is overturned by whoever is in power, this really corrodes democracy from the ground up. And I think that's where... We sometimes lose sight of it. We we talk about it at certain points, uh, you know, in the election cycle. We're what less than a month out. Uh, what's it going to be like on Election Day this time around? And will the lie die or could it get a new life? in a new form.
1: Right. I mean, you talked about, you know, Donald Trump not, you know, where did the information go once the intelligence came in? I'll tell you where it didn't seem to go was to Congress because Congress was completely unprepared. They were the potential victim and they had no idea what was coming. It seems pretty clear from that video that you saw that five minute video. Um, And so they literally left the Congress and the vice president quite deliberately exposed to potential death.
3: Well, that was the whole point. I mean, they wanted to stop that count. They wanted to stop the electoral count at all costs. And that was the point of the violence. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked before about sedition, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, because those are two cases that have an amazing number of cooperating witnesses, all of whom dealt with Roger Stone, Donald Trump's chief political advisor, and it all goes right back to Donald Trump. So we saw what the... January 6th committee has, but we don't know what these cooperating witnesses have told the Department of Justice. I mean, it's very likely that these people have a lot more knowledge about Donald Trump and exactly what his role was and what Roger Stone's role was as a conduit to Donald Trump. We have some tidbits out there from testimony from the summer with Cassidy Hutchinson saying that... Um, Mark Meadows had called Roger Stone the night before, um, but we don't. There was no evidence today that really tied that together in in a substantive way. But I think the the Department of Justice may very well
1: have that evidence. And, you know, the thing is, Charles, this goes back. I mean, in the summer of 2020, Donald Trump was way down in the polls. The summer of 2020 is when he did his hold the Bible upside down and, you know, tear gas a bunch of protesters in order to get there. Um, It was he was sinking in the polls. It was clear to anyone who was following the campaign at that point that he was in trouble. The covid situation wasn't good. So this is a guy who's looking at probably losing, you know, at least possibly losing, likely losing. And his people are already saying, "But we're just going to say that we won. We're just going to put a plan in place. This feels like a conspiracy that started months and months and months before the election even happened. And so I'm wondering for the Department of Justice, is it is there any way that you cannot indict more people up to and including the president? We talked about this a little bit off camera that. You know, I think at this point, people are so exhausted and feel that Donald Trump has so much impunity that no one can imagine him ever having to pay a price for it. But this feels like he and his cohorts were planning this in the summer of 2020.
2: This was something, Joy, that had been orchestrated, like you said, for months. He was embattled on all sides between his different legal cases that he had going on, the different investigations that he had going on, being impeached multiple times, being down in the polls. I mean, think about how many different things that had him climbing and swimming upstream and climbing uphill, he knew that he was facing a winning fight, and this was his last hurrah. For a number of people, they looked at the situation as, this is the only shot that we have as doing, uh, doing anything that will remotely keep him in the space that he wants to be. The question becomes, how much of that did he engineer Versus how much of it did he sign off on? And I think that's where some of the missing pieces have not come out yet. I'm hoping that through the course of the DOJ's investigation that they're getting some of those pieces. And that's something that we're not seeing as the public. But it's important to understand we do have the attempt We do have the intent. All of those things are clear. But in in, in terms of understanding how deep this actually goes when you're talking about an indictment and a prosecution, those are the missing pieces that are absolutely essential.
1: Very quick, rapid fire for the gentleman at the table. If if there's somebody else you would want to see subpoenaed in this case, who would it be?
3: Mark Meadows, without a doubt. No, he should get the immunity here. No question. Give him immunity and subpoena. Yeah. Yeah. Subpoena him. Actually tie him up in a knot so that you can get him to plead to something, and give him immunity. But don't forget, this whole stop the steal goes back to 2016 with Roger Stone in the Republican primaries. This was a plot that goes way back then.
1: My friend, it goes back to 2000. Roger Stone and John Eastman have been floating this theory that the vice president could overturn the election since 2000. It's like a lifelong dream. Uh, Okay, my guests are staying with me. And up next on the readout, Uh, with all the advance warning of the potential for violence, was the Capitol intentionally left unprotected on January 6th? That question, when the
0: readout continues after this. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last.
5: In this report, received on December 26th, the Secret Service Field Office relayed a tip that had been received by the FBI. According to the source of the tip, the Proud Boys plan to march armed into D.C. They think that they will have a large enough group to march into D.C. armed, the source reported, and will outnumber the police so they can't be stopped. Their plan is to literally kill people. Please. Please take this tip seriously and investigate further.
1: Back with me, Clint Watts, Nick Ackerman and Charles Coleman. Uh, Clint, let me go to you first. There's that information that there was a Secret Service field office report that, that that the FBI had received. Sorry, a report that there could be violence on the 6th. So we know that there's also a text message that was presented in these hearings tonight that read POTUS is going to have us March there to the Capitol, POTUS is going to just call for it, meaning the sedition, meaning the Sedition Act, uh, unexpectedly, or just call for them to march, sorry, unexpectedly. Um, how is it possible that the FBI, Clint, and the Secret Service could have failed to pass along a dire warning about the potential violence? Um, and should Chris Ray maybe appear at a hearing and answer that question regarding the FBI?
5: Yeah, it's a, it's a little surprising in terms of the way they've talked about it over time um, because it, it's just odd, right? Like, why uh, didn't they bring this up? I think the Secret Service message, I, I can tell you, Joy, I saw that same When post. <laughs> Everyone saw it. I think if you lived in Washington, D.C. in the month prior yep. um, to January 6th, you knew this was coming. Yep. Um, what's confusing to me is why is a collective organization, the federal government, didn't take some responsibility for it. I think there's a couple things to think about. One, Washington DC is the worst city in terms of coordination because it's so much federal plus the district trying to coordinate things. I think that was a big part of it. The second is in, in terms of defending the Capitol, uh, why w- weren't the Capitol police informed or really brought up to speed about this? If they knew uh, the Proud Boys or any of these groups, those keepers were trying to be outnumbering the officers on, on, on duty that day, then you would obviously want to increase that. Another point that I think is super important, which has come up in some of the hearings is the leftovers of the protest in the summer uh, of 2020, where you had General Milley caught out there. You had uh, Secretary Esper caught out there in a weird situation where it looked like they were involved with President Trump when he was going into the uh, uh, tear gas situation, showing the Bible, which put everybody on a rearward footing. They didn't want to be seen as the military getting involved. And anything involving the democratic process, because what was also on the Donald.Win at that time was uh, martial law, General Flynn calling for martial law, saying the military was going to mobilize. So, in effect, what that created is this delayed reaction time across the board. Intelligence was not shared. And the answer I've not heard over the last year and a half is what is the FBI and federal law enforcement allowed to watch on social media? When are they allowed to trigger an investigation? What leads to a full field? What we would say is a full field investigation and a response. And and to this day, just sitting from the outside and having worked in a lot of these agencies, I don't know who's in charge of that. I don't know what they're able to watch. I don't know how they would stop another attack in this way, especially when all the signals are right out in the open. You and I, I'm sure we talked about it, Joy, before January 6th even happened. Yeah. And yet- all of us watched it unfold, knowing that it was going to happen.
1: Every, everyone I knew, law enforcement friends, were all saying, stay away from the Capitol. Because Donald Trump, by the way, said it was going to be wild on January 6th. Everyone around here knew something bad was going to happen potentially on January 6th, but nobody paid attention to it. And Charles, the other potential explanation, because the or here, is that if you think about the Proud Boys, they had nurtured relationships with law enforcement for years. Right. Uh, the leader of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tarrio, was the head of Latinos for Trump, that you have these federal agencies who knew these were the president's people, that they were Trump's people coming. It wasn't Black Lives Matter. Absolutely not. You're right. We know that. And so they there's there's one theory that they didn't want to look like they were having a big sort of militaristic response to the president's people. But that doesn't like fully answer it for me, because if you know that people are potentially coming armed to the Capitol, you can't even bring a pocket knife into the Capitol. Right. So doing nothing seems real suspicious.
2: That doesn't hold water. And we know that if this were any other group of people, if this were a group of 100 of the world's best and biggest Muslims and showed up on the Capitol that day, And there was a Facebook post about it. It would have been shut down a week before it even happened. And so I think that the notion of, well, we don't want to over militarize the president's people simply doesn't hold water given the level of information that they had. They knew that these people had had actual weapons with them and they knew that they intended to use them. The other thing that's important to understand is I am not convinced and I'm pretty sure, as a matter of fact, that the intelligence had information in it that let them know that, hey, there's actually law enforcement who are going to be a part of, of these people. They are these are, are are military folks and armed force service members who, either current or retired, who will be a part of this group. So the idea that, you know, we, well, we don't really want to cause any trouble with Trump's followers, that just doesn't hold water, especially because of the fact that you knew about the violent intent of these people right. and you knew that what they were capable of.
1: And you knew their violent behavior. Let me play with one more thing. I'm going a little bit off script here. It, this is Donald Trump. This is element three for my wonderful director here. This is Donald Trump during the presidential debate in 2020 talking to the Proud Boys.
3: Give me a name. Give me
1: a White's name. Well, right like White
3: supremacists and right. Proud 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 boys,
1: stand back
3: and stand by.
1: One of the things we heard, Nick, in the hearing today, is that when Donald Trump said that, the Proud Boys literally stood back and stood by. That the Proud Boys were using that language. That you had Donald Trump being able to militarize and demilitarize that crowd. As he spoke, they acted. He says, Go home, they went home. They were literally acting on his orders, even in the crowd. But Donald Trump telegraphed that he had some influence, right, over the Proud Boys. And then it turned out he sure did.
3: Well, he did. I mean, the, the person who had the input over the Proud Boys was Roger Stone. He had a long he, they're term... They're his security. Yeah, he's... He, no, I'll forget the security that day. It goes back before that, where Roger Stone had relationships with all of these people. So this was a, a group that Trump was already uh, using and had contacts with indirectly. I mean, he wasn't doing it himself. That's right. Yeah, I mean, he had... Roger Stone doing it. And that's why Roger Stone is such a critical piece in this whole story that has not come out publicly.
1: You're absolutely right. And his relationships were not just with the Proud Boys. They were also with the Oath Keepers. We're going to talk a lot about that because we have a, a documentarian on a little bit later in the show that's going to get into that. But I do want to acknowledge this pin, if you guys see me with my Black Excellence pin, it matches the one uh, that Charles Coleman has on. He gave it to me. And so I want to thank you for the pin. I got absolutely. swag. You don't, you don't, they don't, you don't normally receive swag. Absolutely. When you're I, had to, I, had, I had
2: to share my brand, my Black Brilliance brand. Um, you embody that, you exemplify that, and so joy is just such a pleasure oh, thank you. to see you represent black I parents.
1: was not trying to solicit that compliment, but I will take it. <laughs> thank you very much, Clint Watts, Nick Ackerman, Charles Coleman. Thank you all very much. Coming up, Trump, uh, Trump crony Roger Stone, as we just mentioned, played a starring role in today's hearing, thanks to the work of documentary filmmaker Christopher Gundbranson, who joins me next One key player in today's hearing was longtime Trump advisor and self-described dirty trickster Roger Stone. The committee showed clips from Danish documentary filmmakers who've been following Stone for the past three years, including during the 2020 election cycle and January 6th insurrection. That video shows Stone calling for violence and suggesting way before Trump actually lost that he could just declare victory regardless of the outcome.
3: Yeah. Let's just hope we're celebrating. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I suspect it'll be, I really do suspect it will still be up in the air. But when that happens, the key thing to do is to claim victory. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. No, we won. F*** you. Sorry, over. We won. Yeah. You're wrong. F*** you. ABC. <laughs> I said f*** the Lord and let's get right to the violence. That's what i <laughs> 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 start smashing
4: pumpkins, if you know
2: what
1: uh, okay. i Joining me now is one of those documentary filmmakers, Christopher Gould Branson, director and producer of A Storm Foretold. Thank you so much for being here. And let let me start by asking you, what did you learn over the course of doing this documentary about Roger Stone's relationship to the conspiracy? Did he talk about in more specifics the idea that they would simply keep Trump in power no matter whether he won or lost?
4: Yes, uh, I I would say he he began already uh, in July of uh, of of 21 uh, 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 to 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 discuss what to do it it seemed like he was pretty convinced that it would end up as a defeat and at that at that point Roger was Roger Stone was actually on his way to prison and uh, on the July 9th the day before Uh, President Trump commuted Roger's sentence, Uh, we have a recording with Roger Stone where he actually predicts pretty much exactly how it eventually ends up uh, after the election uh, in November.
1: Was the idea that he wanted Trump to remain in power for himself so that he would be available to pardon him? Was it that or was it simply that he simply believed Trump ought to be president forever because he's a Republican and he's his ally?
4: Well, it's, it's hard for me to say, but but if, if I was to give a qualified guess, it's, uh, if there's something Roger Stone and Donald Trump shares, it's a win-at-all-cost attitude. And as uh, Mr. Ackerman mentioned earlier on uh, in your show tonight, uh, this goes back to 2016, where, where where Stone and Trump actually actually play by—it's exactly the same playbook as they realized or tried to realize in 16. Then when Trump surprisingly won, it became irrelevant. But basically, they they were applying the exact same strategy and they were in the same situation, believing they were heading for defeat.
1: Let me uh, me just describe it to you. I'll play it. This is a bit from today about Roger Stone's connection to some of these violent groups, the Oath Keepers uh, and the Proud Boys. Take a look.
0: Joshua James, the leader of the Alabama Oath Keepers, provided security for Roger Stone and was with him on January 5th. This is uh, the picture of the two uh, together on January 5th. James entered the Capitol on January 6th. He assaulted a police officer. Earlier this year, he pled guilty to seditious conspiracy and and obstruction of Congress. Perhaps even more disturbing is Roger Stone's close association with Enrique Tarrio, the national chairman of the Proud Boys. Roger Stone's connection with Enrique Tarrio and the Proud Boys is well documented. By video evidence, with phone records the select committee has obtained.
1: What were you able to observe about Donald, about Roger Stone's relationship to these extremist groups, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers?
4: Well, on, on January 6th, we were the only reporters inside the Willard Hotel. And I was together with Roger Stone and Joshua James and the other people other people of that group from Oath Keepers. And, and what we observed was, of course, a very close relationship. Roger was uh, asking Joshua James for advice about going to, to the Ellipse, we, we had a, a situation in the morning where we we were about to leave for the Ellipse, where Trump was going to give his speech. Roger was scheduled to speak himself, but was uh, uh, canceled from the list at the very last moment. He became upset and decided to return to his uh, hotel suite and watch the, the speech from there. And there was a back-and-forth discussion, uh, where some of the other people in, in, in the group just uh, when we got up to the room again said to Roger that he should calm down and he was still relevant and Roger then said uh, out, out into the open just to just to wait and see what i've got coming and and, and so there was a very There was a tense atmosphere and and an expectation that something would happen. That's something. Yeah. And uh, needless to say, something very, very big, very, very bad happened. Thank you, Christopher Goulbranson. Thank
1: you very much. And up next, while today's hearing detailed events in the past, it could not be more relevant for the future of our democracy. We'll be right back.
0: A key lesson of this investigation is this. Our institutions only hold when men and women of good faith make them hold, regardless of the political cost. We have no guarantee that these men and women will be in place next time. Any future president inclined to attempt what Donald Trump did in 2020 has now learned not to install people who could stand in the way. Congressman Cheney is absolutely right. The only reason
1: Trump's plot failed was because there were Republicans across the country who were bound by duty and actually followed the law. But Trump has now driven many of them out. Yet another reminder that the former president's assault on democracy has never, never stopped. And now with the guardrails gone, what we have left is the current batch of Republican candidates who are willing to do anything to grab and keep power, including stealing an election. According to The Washington Post, 291 out of 569 Republican candidates for the House and Senate and key statewide offices are big lie believers. There's Republican candidates for the Republican candidate for Michigan Secretary of State Christina Caramo, who has said that the 2020 election was stolen and claimed that Democrats have a satanic agenda. Yeah, satanic. There's Republican Minnesota Secretary of State nominee Kim Crockett who has called herself the election denier in chief and Republican candidate for Nevada secretary of state, Jim Marchand, who has said that when he's uh, elected, President Trump is going to be president again in 2024. Then there are Senate candidates like Arizona's Blake Masters and North Carolina's Ted Budd, who have both questioned President Biden's victory. They would join eight sitting senators who voted to overturn the 2020 results. Those eight do not include senators who played some role in the president's plan to steal the election, like Senators Ron Johnson and Mike Lee. These Republicans would help bring Donald Trump back to power, which one historian has warned would be the end of the republic. Joining me now is Tim Miller, writer at large for The Bulwark and co-host of the Next Level podcast. And Tim, I mean, this is the thing, right? I mean, what we've seen in these hearings is a lot of Republicans testifying because it was Republicans who Donald Trump was pushing to overturn the election. And at least at the state level, they weren't willing to do it. That ain't true no more. These shoved out those people and they're being quickly replaced by people who will do it next time. Is does is does that message is that message seeping in among Republicans that you talk to or do they just not care?
6: Unfortunately, Joe, I think that they just don't care. Uh, you know, I, I think that Liz Cheney has been very uh, smart on this and has and has focused on a lot when she talked about it. I saw her last week when I was in Arizona and she was campaigning locally and said that in Arizona, you know, this is why you can't support the Republican like Mark who who is somebody to name. There who is the Secretary of State candidate uh, who has been one of the most fervent advocates of the big lie, and I think the same is true in some of these other Secretary of State candidates, right? Like it was these lower office people that a lot of times were the bulwark, pun intended, uh, between us and Trump's attempt to overturn the election, right? It was Brad Raffensperger in Georgia. It was my friend Stephen Richer, who's the county recorder in Arizona. God love Stephen, but who would have thought that the county recorder would (laughs) would have such a important role for our democracy, right? The problem is that up and down the ballot, those types of folks are being replaced, Uh, many of them lost in primaries, some of them retired. And it's just as true uh, you know, in the Senate, as it is on school boards. and, and I think that uh, that most of the team normal Republicans, so to speak, you know, who might do the right thing next time, are putting their head in the sand yeah. and, and trying to ignore this reality you know so that they can stay stay in the stay in power. or like Ben Sasse, they're retiring and going down to Florida where they can you know talk
5: to Cicero.
1: I mean, and the thing is, if if people like Ron Johnson, for instance, who's running in a pretty strong re-election, you would think somebody who was that involved, that openly involved, that's in the hearings, his name is showing up not in a good way, then he'd pay a price for that. If they don't pay a price for it, if people get re-elected after having supported an insurrection, to me, that just erodes our democracy further because what it tells Republicans is there's no cost to it. You should probably just go ahead and do it the next time.
6: Yeah, and I think this is the frustrating strategic question for Democrats, right? Because on the one hand, you just want to bang the drum about this and hit people over the head and say, this is so important. You have to vote for Democrats this time because of this issue. And I think that's why uh, things like this hearing, the salience are important. But the other thing is when you just when you look at the data, the real data of what swing voters, you know, either people who are considering one candidate or the other or people who are considering voting or not voting, what they care about, uh, Row is a bigger issue for them, right? Or inflation is a bigger issue for them. if they're looking at, at voting Republican, and so so this question is: Do we keep banging them over the head to try to make them care about this, or do we focus on higher salience issues? Because I totally agree that this—it's—it's—it's if it's, it's, you're rewarding people that participated in the insurrection and they get reelected. Well, then they're just going to be more emboldened That's next right. time. And so it's absolutely critical that those folks are defeated. Uh, and so then the question is, what's the best way to defeat them? And I think if there was an obvious answer, you know, the, the strategy should be doing it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about some of these people. You know, There are candidates out here, Republican candidates are Are running and saying that people are demonically possessed. Like, I mean, what they think are the way to win. A lot of these Republicans are saying that, well, my Democratic opponent is demon possessed. And and that works with some people. You know what what makes me lose sleep at night, Tim Miller? The number of Americans who I fear actually don't mind if we're not a democracy anymore, as long as in their mind, the right people get socked in the face, you know, and that they can feel like, good, the immigrants got them. You know what I mean? That people actually don't mind if we're not. That's what I worry about.
6: Yeah, well, that's we're going to go to a dark place if we think about that too much, Joy, because that's a reality. Right. And I mean, just look at Georgia. Right. Georgia is a prime example of this. How can Herschel Walker still have 46 percent of the vote? How? Right. But it's so important. The question is, how does Raphael Warnock beat him? Right, and I think that some people, you know, you viscerally want them to be to be like kill it, you know, call them demonic, (laughs) you know, play their game. But like the reality is, why Warnock is winning right now is that he's winning over a lot of like former Republican types who who sort of look at him and he seems safe, you know, he seems moderate, like he doesn't seem too crazy, and they're like, yeah, Herschel's so crazy, I'm gonna go with Warnock this time, right? And so sometimes, uh, you know, our emotional instinct, we gotta fight it in order for the better, you know, for, for ensuring someone that's going to protect our democracy is winning these races.
1: I think Tim Ryan is a good example of that. Right. Like sometimes all you have to just do is just be seem normal and sane and just like stable <laughs> like emotionally. And just, you know, like you're not going to you're not going to do anything like, I don't know, make women a ward of the state, and make them make 10 year olds give birth like it. Right. Uh, and, and I guess my, my, my last question here to you is, Are you hopeful that at some point someone in the Republican Party will say enough? And is there anyone with the moral authority to say we need to actually believe elections are real?
6: No, I'm not hopeful. And this is why I think it's really important to bang on these Secretary of State's races, because they all have excuses in the Senate race. Oh, you know, we care about abortion or tax cuts or whatever, so I'm going to hold my nose for the Republican. There is no excuse in Secretary of State's races. So every Republican needs to be asked, will you support Mark Fincham? Will you support uh, the insurrectionists in Nevada and Michigan and these other states? Because their only job is to count votes. And there is no excuse for the Ben Sasses of the world but to oppose those folks. And they all are not doing it because they're being cowardly. And I think that is, you know, the big test that, unfortunately, I think the Republicans are going to fail.
1: Yeah, uh, unfortunately. And it, and it's frightening because I think that, it, you know, like you said, people have to keep a lot of things in their heads all at once. And Roe is a huge issue. And, you know, the cost of things is a huge issue. This is whether we have a democracy. Nothing else matters if we ain't one. If it's just an autocracy. Good luck. Uh, Tim Miller. Thank you very much. That is tonight's readout.